0: We now have a teacher who has arisen when the student is ready. (laughs) The questions Mm -hmm. have arisen. Spontaneous
1: (laughs) arising. Thanks.
0: Yeah,
2: welcome. Really nice to have you here. uh, as some of you know, Joseph just finished teaching the 10 day retreat here that he does annually. So lovely to have you here on your first day off. <laughs> and, um, and Joseph's been practicing for 55 years. <laughs> he founded IMS about 40 years ago now with Jack and Sharon. So, um, and I know many of us have benefited so deeply from his teachings and his writings, and uh, it's just a real um, honor to have you here with us practicing. So, thank you so much. Yeah. And um, we'll hand it over to you to make a few remarks, and they've prepared embodied questions. (laughs)
1: Uh, First, I just wanted to thank all of you. Uh, The retreat that just finished teaching uh, went so smoothly. It was just so easeful coming in and the teaching and believing. And I know very well what's needed to support that ease. Uh, And it's all of you. Because I know this very well from IMS. Uh, So I'm always really appreciative of... uh, everybody's support for making these retreats happen uh, in as easeful a way they do. As I understand that the conversation is about right speech or wise speech, Um, I just really had a few very brief things to say to start it off and then like to open it for discussion. um, So two things came to mind in thinking about it, in thinking about why the Buddha gave such importance to it. And one of the indications he gave such importance to it, aside of course from it being one element of the Eightfold Path, is, um, as many of you probably know, the Buddha gave one very specific list of 10 unwholesome actions to avoid And I really appreciate that list because he didn't just say, be good and then leave it to us to try to figure out how. He was really specific. He said, there are these 10 actions. These are not good ideas, you know, practice avoiding them, uh, both for the harm they do in the moment, but also uh, for the karmic consequences four of the 10 unwholesome actions have to do with speech. So that's a big chunk. You know, if we could kind of refine the quality of our speech, we're already a long way to living our lives uh, in a more beneficial, wholesome way. Um, The other reason I find why why speech so important, beside that avoidance, you know, of doing unskillful actions with all the attendant consequences, is that because we spend a good part of our days talking, I find it an amazing arena of practice for tuning into motivation, you know, and again as most of you know, motivation is really the key. There's one Tibetan teaching which says everything rests on the tip of motivation because that really determines the skill or unskill of the action we're doing. And yet motivations are, or can be quite subtle and they can be mixed. And in the busyness of our lives and our actions, uh, it's often hard to even take the time or have the ability to tune in. Well, what actually is my motivation? in performing this action, but I found that with speech the motivation often is quite clear not that we usually take the time to stop and look at it because mostly (laughs) the words just come tumbling out but if we can train ourselves to just have a moment or two of pause before we speak it's often pretty obvious, you know, what's, what's the predominant motivation. Uh, is it to bring people together? Or is it to bring people apart? You know, is there anger or aversion in there? Is there kindness in there? Is it simply to say, here I am? You know, there are lots of different uh, motives and so, because we speak so often during the day, and if we train ourselves to begin to tune into the motivation, we're really bringing mindfulness into a big part of our day. You know, and for me that has made the practice uh, tremendously alive in the midst of daily life. So, it just feels like a tremendously important arena to explore. I think that's it. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you have any things particularly you'd like to talk about, or explore... I have the mic. <laughs> um...
0: During the retreat, I was noticing the the undertone of motivation like where, and there's something that actually is communicated besides with words and it's t- sort of hard to unbraid um, um, those motivations um, at subtler levels, and I see. Um, in fact, maybe it's even impossible because there's the ones that I have in here, and then there's the ones that you might think I have, and and there's projections, and those I can't really worry about, but. It seems like there just is another layer under another layer, and, mm-hmm. and you just keep nodding. Yes, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. a great retreat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: it is interesting. If we, so, it's something we can observe s- sometimes in others. Well, this, this is just an example, not so much in verbal speech, but written speech. Like at IMS, <laughs> retreatants might write these notes either to the teachers or to other yogis really aversive notes signed, Metta (laughs) And so the reverse is also, you know, sometimes somebody may be speaking nice words and yet the energetic body language is really not so kind you know and so those levels I think are really important um, to tune into and as you say especially in ourselves and that's that's where uh, mindfulness of the body could be a good starting place for just tuning into the motivation behind what we're about to say you know so if our body is agitated, or tense, or nervous, or whatever it may be or uptight it might be worth taking a look at, okay, what I'm about to say uh, is it influenced in some unwholesome way or not, not necessarily, but it could be, and so the body could reflect that One point you made, which I think is really important is that we don't ever really know for sure what the motivation is in another person. And so, I think a lot of miscommunication happens when we're assuming a motivation without having checked it out. And this happens a lot. It happens a lot in speech. It happens a lot in email. You know, where, where it's much harder to pick up the nuances um, so this reminds me of a little uh, little rap There's one. There's one uh, sutta which I really love, and it has more to do with right listening than right speaking. And the Buddha sets a really high bar. He says, you know, people may speak to you in one of many ways, and he goes through this whole long list. They may speak to you truthfully or untruthfully, with an intent to harm or with an intent to help, with goodwill, with ill will. So he goes on and on with quite a long list of all the ways people may address you. And then the sutta goes on, regardless of how people address you, you should abide with a heart of loving kindness, Concerned for their Welfare with Compassion. So reading this, just imagine, okay, somebody is yelling at you, speaking harshly, lying, and wanting to harm you. Abide with a heart of loving kindness, (laughs) concerned for their welfare. That's a challenge, but I love that teaching because kind of it sets a very high bar, and it points to a practice which I have found so helpful in teaching, but it applies to all of our interactions. Most of the time I think we are reactive to people's behavior, you know, and we We like when they're behaving well, and we don't like it very much when they're behaving badly. It's very fruitful when it's possible, especially when people are behaving badly, and I've had this situation, to actually not immediately be reactive to the behavior and the energy coming, but to settle back, and open my eyes, and to really look at that person. You know, so they're they're doing, you know, harmful things, or unpleasant things, or obnoxious things, you know. Just to take, okay, just, just let me look at the whole person. And almost always, and it becomes also very obvious, when my eyes are open in that way, to see the suffering which is causing that behavior. Because happy people, you know, easeful people, usually don't act in that way. And what I found to be so amazing, is that when I can see, taking the whole person, and it really is visual, you know, it's really opening my eyes to look at them, just in a moment, I've seen this happen so many times, it can go from my own reactivity to the behavior level and it drops to compassion for the suffering because I'm seeing the suffering rather than simply being reactive. And then, of course, different appropriate actions, different actions may be appropriate in response, but it's coming from a very different motivation. Does this make any sense? Uh, it's been it's been tremendously helpful. So I had this experience for the first time uh, in response to an email, and I had never made the connection between this particular sutta and email. But as we all know, email is kind of both the gift and the bane of our lives, uh, you know, and. I don't know about you, but at different times I'll be getting an email which in one way or another just triggers a reactive you know, reaction you know, in me of some kind of irritation or annoyance or aversion or something or other. And for the first time, it was just before I came out here to California, I'd gotten one of these emails and I remembered that sutta which the Buddha was using in terms of speech, but applies perfectly to emails. Someone may speak to you angrily or not angrily, with harshness, wanting to harm one, you know, that whole list. Abide compassion for their welfare. So I remembered that and I reread the email and it, it's like everything dropped from that level of instinctive reactivity oh, this person is speaking (laughs) via email in this way. Can I abide compassionate for their welfare with a heart of loving kindness? And it was amazing. The email I sent in response was completely different than if I had sent the email before I dropped into that relationship. So it has to do not only with verbal speech, but also with our new technology of speech. So there's a lot, I mean, this, this is such a rich field.
0: I'm curious to know how, uh, I mean, it's plain to me when you're talking with someone and you can look at them that you could develop compassion uh, for what's behind their behavior. But when it's in an email, how do you do that same thing? I mean, it's you... Mm -hmm reinterpret it in some way? Hmm. I mean you don't even know what the real intent behind it was so I'm curious to know how you...
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't really have to know their real intent because I can work with, I can become aware of my Projection of what their intent was, see my own reactivity to it, and then simply remind myself of that sutta where the Buddha laid out all the intents, you know, good intent, bad intent, in a whole variety of ways, and he's saying, regardless of what the intent is, abide compassion for their welfare with a heart of loving kindness. So it just reminds me, I do have a take you know, on what their intent may be, or whatever, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter whether it happens to be accurate or not. If I'm in a reactive mode, it means I haven't dropped down into being compassionate for their welfare. You know, and so, we really can be compassionate for anybody's welfare. It's just, it's remembering that that's a possibility in the midst of our own reactivity. And so it's hard to remember to do that because we often feel justified in our reactivity or self-righteous in it or whatever. And so we forget you know, that there's another way of Entering into the conversation, so it really just has—it's really an internal process, um, and it's—it's it's amazing. I mean, it, it really changes then our response, you know. And so this this goes to highlighting. So we're, um, here we're just using email as another form of speech, you know. It's the same same thing it's highlighting uh, that in speech whether it's a written email or a verbal speech it's a very good opportunity to become aware of our motivation yeah. before before we respond where is it coming from? and to see that, I think for many of us, the usual place that it's coming from is on the level of reaction to behavior. It's not perhaps often on the level of, regardless of the behavior, let me abide (laughs) with a heart of loving kindness, compassion for their welfare, especially when the behavior seems to be rather difficult.
3: Hi, thanks for being here. I'm Paul. Um, I've noticed occasionally on on retreat, for example, that people have a tendency to move or think or act a little more slowly. Is that a fairly safe statement? Um, And there seems to be a a discrepancy between the sort of what I might call the tempo or the speed of the heart and the speed of the head. And one of the things that encourages for me um, a higher level of good, wise communication, let's say wise speech, is to really take what seems like radically more time to respond, which, during which things are converted from reactions okay. to responses, ideally. Whether that's speech or behavior or, mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. it is, that that time is really critical. And um, I'm wondering um, about the discrepancy between how much time we often seem to take when we're in practice mode versus when we're in work mode. And if there's a way for that skillfulness to, with practice, accelerate to the pace that's demanded of a busy work schedule, or if it really just is, for me, it's a constantly reminder to slow down regardless of what kind of influence I may be feeling uh, externally, whether it's direct or whether it's just empathetic.
1: So uh, yeah, I think there are, uh, there are
3: several questions in there, probably, yeah, or yeah. maybe there are none yeah, No, no <laughs> but, but is, is it slowing down uh, or is it becoming skillful more quickly, I guess is the, is the heart of my question. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of little aspects there.: One aspect is. I don't think it's a question of speed. I think it is a question of whether we're rushing or not. And You know the feeling of rushing, we all know it. So rushing is when our mind is ahead of ourselves, when energetically we're toppling forward into what we're doing, into the next thing we're doing. So one of the first things that would be really interesting to observe is that rushing doesn't have anything to do with speed. You can move quickly and be completely settled back in yourself, but moving quickly. You can be moving really slowly and rushing. And I've noticed this myself on retreat, when the lunch bell rings, I can be doing slow walking meditation and it's just as slow. (laughs) But inside, (laughs) I'm toppling forward. You know, so that would be a good thing to check, to to take a moment before responding to unrush, Right, just because in that rushing energy then things are going to come tumbling out So that doesn't take long, it just is is a quick check-in Okay, am I rushing or am I here? Then I think what you're describing It really doesn't take a lot of time. It takes, for me, it takes remembering that there's a different reference point. So that's why I like that sutta so much, because the Buddha is laying out a reference point for response which is completely non-conventional. It's not our usual way of how we decide how to respond. I, and, and I love the high bar of it, you know, somebody's yelling at you and lying at you and wanting to hurt you. Abide with a heart of loving kindness, concerned for their welfare. The startling nature of that, you know, and of, of how unusual that response would be For me, it's simply a question in the moment of remembering. Oh yeah, there's that possibility. And then, uh, maybe with practice, it becomes easier to settle into that space more quickly. But I think the key element is remembering that that space is even there. Because mostly in the rush of our reactivity, we don't even consider it. You know, somebody's acting in some difficult way, and of course we react to their behavior. Uh, so I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think the slowness is necessary. Although, you know, it, in the beginning, for a while, it can help remind us that that other possibility is there. Do you follow what? I think it's remembering. It's just. Oh yeah. I don't have to do this. I can do this. I'm hearing the
3: differentiation between an internal tempo and an external, and an yeah. internal speed and an external speed, so to speak.
1: That, yeah. that, and also the critical difference is not even of speed of rushing or not. Rushing is the toppling forward. So that's, that's the energetic move. And that's what makes the settling back very difficult. Do you see? I mean, I'm sure you all know what rushing feels like. <laughs> so this would be a good exercise, you know, in, in doing and in working. A, a tremendous practice would be just to set the intention to pay attention to those moments when you feel like you're rushing. Because the feeling is very obvious, it's not a subtle feeling. And as soon as you become mindful that you're rushing, just stop for a moment kind of settle the energy back and then continue at whatever speed's appropriate. And as I say, you, you can continue at a fair speed but not with the toppling forward energy. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I just love about the practice and these discussions and it really can transform the way we live you know it's not just about what happens on a meditation retreat <laughs> it's about okay <laughs> how are we living you know and is, it, is it in a way that uh, is more peaceful or less peaceful
4: um, thank you so much I was able to hear your dhamma talk on uh, this sort of Simultaneity of transcendent and 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 uh, imminent or um, relative relative is the word. Thank you. I I was looking for Um, one of the things that I think is a challenge for any community of human beings uh, working together is when we there's areas of of Agreement, perhaps, in the transcendent, or in, and then and this interest <laughs> in this, but as we deepen even explorations, for example, in issues of of difference, um, that becomes more tricky with speech and and um, and cultural uh, you know norms, and and I just wondered if you could. Share a few <laughs> thoughts around that as um, as we really, you know, these differences, particularly as we explore things that have um, profound threads in society. For example, um, how how can we navigate that when mm-hmm. there are these these differences in that relative? And the
1: yeah. Yeah. Okay, so there's, There's again, a a lot... That's a big topic, I know. (laughs) It is a big topic, and uh, so I'll just, you know, various threads of it. Um, So I'd just like to offer, just in one thread of it, but there's there's more, uh, two ends of a spectrum of ways of dealing with differences. So at one end... Do you know who David Brinkley is or was? He was a famous newscaster. And, um, <laughs> so he wrote this book with a great title. Everyone is entitled to my opinion. So <laughs> <laughs> That's one end of the spectrum, right? Where we engage in dialogue with that attitude. <laughs> you know, everyone's entitled to how I look at things. The other end of the spectrum of that particular spectrum is a line from uh, the 17th century Zen master Bankai uh, who wrote a wonderful book, uh, the, t- the teachings of his, in a wonderful book called The Unborn. Uh, so one of the lines in that says, don't side with yourself. So I have found that to be a tremendously useful reminder Right. so that even as we have particular views and opinions we can have them but really look to see are we holding, are we really attached to the viewpoint or do we have them in a spirit of "Hmm, you know, this is how it looks from this angle maybe from another angle it looks quite a different way right. And and to hold that but very often people have a hard time remembering to hold it in that way. They're more on the other end of the spectrum. So that's just a really useful practice. It's like, and I've, you know, in different board meetings at IMS and you know, with all the organizational stuff that comes up, uh, I've often had to remind myself in listening to discussions in which I might've had strong views about something. It's like, well, why does the other person feel that way? You know, just to to kind of settle back and not be so attached to the rightness of my view, but to realize, yeah, I have this view for certain reasons, but, you know, (laughs) giving myself the space to even internally inquire, well, what what might it look like from another side? So that makes conversation a lot more productive. Uh, And it's surprisingly hard to remember to do. You know, we get so invested in our viewpoint. So that's one arena. Another arena uh, has come up a lot in um, the diversity work we've been doing at IMS and, uh, you know, a lot of workshops on undoing racism. And we've been doing this on the board level and the staff level. and, And I was just speaking with Guy and Sally about this. We were remembering back to a board meeting, I don't know, maybe six years ago. And that's when we were first beginning to start doing this work. And there were, uh, at that time, I don't know, maybe four or five people of color on the board. And we were really, you know, diving in uh, just to these issues which are very complex and there's a lot of feelings. and. And we were all remembering how tense that meeting was, you know, because just a lot of us, for different reasons, just felt very uncomfortable in the conversation. you know, kind of either afraid we were going to say something wrong or fear of expressing something whatever it was, it was not easeful. And we were commenting over the list five or six years of having every board meeting this is a topic of conversation you know we've done more and more workshops and and it's amazing the degree of ease that there is now in this conversation you know where people can express lots of different views and, and there's not that same tension about it so I've come to appreciate in arenas of difficult conversation for whatever reason whether it's issues like that or could be others sometimes it's recognizing it takes time and repeated interest to come to a place of ease you know and kind of not to short-circuit that process sometimes it's not easy right at first to feel easeful with it but if the commitment you know is there Something really changes. So I, I don't know if either of anything I responded addresses specifically what you had in mind. No, that's
4: Thank, you. Thank you. that's, that's
1: lovely. And, and that's just another example of the value of speech as an arena of practice. You know, because so much can be learned. You know, and greater ease accomplished over time as we practice.
4: Actually, I'm realizing I have a, a sort of a follow-up, in, in some ways, one of the things when we kind of come into the realm of the relative and <laughs> the opinions and views. Um, you, you're mentioning sort of the, ti- the time factor, but one of the things that can happen with it, let's say that meeting mm-hmm. you know six years ago or whatever, is people, the f- the fear of saying the wrong thing or sounding, intending, yeah, yeah, yeah. like they're, and so... You know, is are is you're, as is you're sort of saying, okay, there is actually a just a time and a comfort part of that in order to know people's intentions or, you know? Well, um,
1: I guess an assumption that I make in the context of these discussions, whether it's here or at ims the assu- the underlying assumption I'm making is that basically the the group intention is good, the skill may not be there, and so a lot of things may be said that are, are not skillful but not necessarily from a bad intention so if there's enough trust and Hopefully, there's a minimal, a minimal enough level of trust, you know, in a community like this or at IMS. It's the acknowledged recognition that a lot of mistakes are going to be made. It's just inevitable, you know, and things are going to be said in an unskillful way or people may get hurt or whatever. But if there really is that shared sense of the basic intention is good, then then it is a question of time and learning. It's learning skills, learning what's unskillful, you know, learning to feel greater ease in talking about difficult issues. Mm. But I've seen, I've just seen tremendous movement in that, so I know, I really know that that's what can happen.
5: I find for myself as a practiced response, I'm sure, that I can touch into that feeling of compassion when someone's talking to me. And I think partially because of that, sometimes I attract people who I don't know well, who (laughs) want to tell me all (laughs) kinds of things that are...
1: I know the feeling.
5: Yes. (laughs) Maybe far outside the realm of at work, really what I want to hear from someone whose last name I don't know. So, touching into that place of compassion for them seems very easy, but then not being judgmental of, like, this is way too much. Right. How can you not know this is too much? And also maintaining my own boundary yeah, 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 yeah. of I don't want all of my energy sucked out in this tends to be where my work is. So, if you want to say something to hmm? that advice. <laughs> uh, yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> Sylvia has a great line and uh, this is going to be a paraphrase because I I can't remember it exactly but she said something about when somebody comes up to her and I'm sure many many people come up to her, you know, Oh, I have to tell you this. And she'll say, why? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I think we may not all have Sylvia's way of doing that, (laughs) no, it's a really interesting question and it's basically how to set boundaries kindly, you know, so that the energy behind it is not one of resentment, you know, or aversion. And I think that that is a skill. but it's not, I think it's not that hard to begin to play with language. Just for example, I, you know, somebody comes up to you in that situation and you might say, you know, this isn't really a good time now for this. or Just, just something that's not a dismissal I and mean, it's not saying, you know, go away. It's just acknowledging your own particular need at that time and creating the space. So I think there is there are ways of expressing it Uh, and it's kind of a it will be easier to find the words if you can see the initial kind of resentment or irritation kind of drop back from that and then have the words come from a a more loving space. If we're verbalizing from the place of irritation then it's harder to find the right words, you know, and so generally we'll come out then in some aversive way. Uh, But being compassionate does not mean that we just have to open ourselves to the flood. I mean very often uh, you know people will come up to me in the middle of a retreat and kind of busy and a yogi might come up and say I just need to speak to you for two minutes it's never two minutes (laughs) you know and sometimes I have the space and the time okay let's go talk and sometimes I don't Uh, I'll just say Uh, Something like, uh, you know, I can't do it right now. Let's let's make another time. So I think there are ways, you know, of finding that language. But but I think the important thing is realizing it's fine to set the boundaries, and it's important to check the energy of your response. There's one exercise I did when I was first getting into Buddhism, I was still in the Peace Corps in Thailand. So this goes back 50 years. You know, I was just learning, I didn't know anything about it. Um, so I was reading and studying and I come across uh, you know, the Eightfold Path and Right speech. And so in, in a somewhat naive way, although it's, it proved to be very instructive, you know, I read about not gossiping, and so I just uh, I took a resolution in myself. It was, looking back now, it was a little extreme, but uh, then I was young and enthusiastic. Um, I said, okay, for the next few months, I'm not going to speak about any third person. I'm not going to speak to someone about someone else. It was an amazing experiment, I mean, 90% of my speech was eliminated, which I was amazed to see how much of what I said fell into that category, and it wasn't necessarily, you know, bad or judgmental things, although it's probably part of it, but just in general, you know, how much was speaking about someone to someone else, and it was so uh, illuminating. First, to see how much speech was devoted to that. The second was to see that a lot of it was judgmental in some way. And that when I stopped doing that for that period of time, my mind became a lot more peaceful and a lot less self-judgmental. It's like that pattern of judgment that I had been expressing about others. Of course, I had been directing to myself as well. And it just calmed down a lot. So that was a useful, it was just a useful experiment. You know, and you might want to not want to do it for three months, although well, you could, but even for a short period of time, just, just to see, you know, okay, what would that be like? Another really useful exercise, I think I may have spoken about this last year. Uh, this is really one of my favorites uh, do you know the the Pali word for useless talk? It's a great word, sampapalapa. <laughs> uh, so the word sounds just like onomatopoeia. sampapalapa, where we where we say something that is just completely useless, <laughs> and to notice how often we do that. You know, we we're in a conversation, just hanging out with friends, and and i see you know not infrequently the urge to say something that is not saying really anything but here i am <laughs> that that's the only meaning <laughs> of the words and so just to see that to see and, and then to practice you know if i can catch the about to moment of that so, uh, I don't have to declare this, <laughs> you know, and just not do it. And it, it's a very good, uh, tangible experience of the value of renunciation. Because in that moment, it's just renouncing that impulse to phew, some pop a <laughs> <You know? laughs> And it always feels good. It always fe- okay i didn't have to expend that energy in a completely useless way you know and so it's a kind of conservation of energy in it it's exercising that ability to no this is unnecessary i don't need to do this that's a powerful force to develop in the mind you know sometimes sometimes we think of renunciation only as kind of these big things but we can actually practice it in just in a lot of little ways I'm going to hand the microphone to this person that raised their hand.
5: <laughs> <laughs> some some Papalumpa. So, so um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the dance between right speech, right communication, not engaging in too much, here I am, not engaging in too much speaking about third parties. The sort of the dance between that and social life
6: yeah, and being
5: yeah. at dinner parties. And I I happen to have a husband who is from Eastern European where small talk. He's from Eastern Europe and small talk doesn't really exist there. And so we have a lot of. And he is such a he is really good at wise communication because he doesn't really say anything. So that's <laughs> you know he sort of saves himself. But so we and sometimes he'll say to me, well, why are you even talking? You're just building the air. You don't even need to say what you're saying. And I'm saying, well, this is what we do. It's the custom. And so, you know, I, I, I feel like this duty to be a good house guest and to entertain or, you know, to say what needs to be said and especially say it for both of us because you're not saying anything. But, um, but I also don't necessarily want to engage yeah. in slander or anything like that, but also don't want to seem like this, oh, I'm too good for you to take part in this conversation. So yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. I could go on and on, but you get what yeah, I'm yeah, saying. Yeah,
1: yeah, No, it's. Uh, I think that is the big challenge. Uh, mostly, what I would say is, don't create a rigid model of what it should look like, you know, and play. Just, just, just explore, and maybe sometimes it's moderating. <laughs> the amount we do it, so, so I'm not suggesting we have to take on some kind of absolutist thing, okay, <laughs> you know, this is co- although that was the experiment I did then and at that time in my life, it was okay to do that, uh, but it may be that, that you want to do it in a, in a more flexible way, you know, so you still do engage in what we might call small talk, But even within that, you you could monitor, okay, well, what's in the small talk, you know, and eliminate the more egregious, (laughs) you know, uh, uselessnesses. Uh, But I would do it from a place of play and investigation and exploration and, you know, see what it's like and than, rather than getting tight behind it. Uh, and it would also be interesting, mm, I don't know how to say this exactly, uh, in an exploratory way, mm, just to see, especially with friends, you know, or with people we're close to, Is there some way of elevating the meaning content of the conversation? Now because, because a lot of it is, is habit. We, we, we're just in the habit of conversing in certain ways? You know it was just uh, so i I'll, I'll, I'll just offer an extreme of this but it, I'm not suggesting we go to this extreme, but it kind of maybe gives an indication. So maybe you have this out here, but there's some friends in New York who uh, put together what they call Jeffersonian dinners. You know what that is? It's, so there's a dinner party, and there's a topic put out, and people go around addressing that topic. So everybody, everybody is connected to the conversation. It's not, you know, a lot of separate side conversations, and it's usually a topic that has some interest or some meaning, and it's just very interesting. the The level of conversation is very different. So that that's that's quite a stylized form, and I mean, you might try throwing a dinner party like that, and you know just put out, and and even if you, you know, you do it for 15 minutes, but less formally than that. I don't know, I I can just imagine giving some reflection uh, Really, to things that are important to you, you know, and are, are there ways of bringing them into conversation, mm-hmm. yeah, but, but it, it also done, be done from a place of interest, you know, not from a place of should or judgment about, you know, when we're not doing it or somebody else isn't doing it, it it's more kind of playing and exploring with our lives. Mm-hmm.
2: Joseph, can I ask something? Sure. Following up with that, I have my own. Um, so uh, the, this high bar that the Buddha sets, how to not um, get discouraged or have some sense of, of, as we investigate this area, seeing how we're not measuring up and how to, how to maintain a, a sense of curiosity and mm-hmm. engagement from that place rather than slipping into... Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs>
1: Well, (laughs) I think that uh, the foundation of all our practices has to be, well, I'll say it was expressed in one line from the book uh, Zorba the Greek. I know this (laughs) book from the 60s. (laughs) Anyway, the one character in this book says, Self-knowledge is always bad news. (laughs) And so, that's our starting place. (laughs) And Trungpa Rinpoche, he he used to have this line, you know, the spiritual life is one insult after another. (laughs) So, we know that. You know, it's like as we start to look into ourselves, it's just... (laughs) So, a really important part is learning to have a sense of humor about... The million times we fall down, you know, and make mistakes, and because it's going to happen. But if we can develop a certain lightness of heart about that, that actually becomes the means for practice. If we're busy judging ourselves for having fallen down, that's just adding another defilement on top of the initial one. So, and this. This takes some practice, you know, to to see one's mind, to, to look at one's own mind with a sense of humor. Uh, I found it really helpful. I mean, there, there were times, I think I've gotten past this phase now, at least it seems that way for a while, but for many years on my retreats, many, many years. You know how on retreat, memories come back, of all the things we've done. (laughs) The the most frequent comment I had in my mind about the memories of different actions that I took, the most frequent comment was, how stupid, (laughs) how stupid, how could you have done that? You know, as I just started reliving all the stupid things <laughs> I had done. So after a while, you have to start smiling. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh yeah, yeah that too. <laughs> but it takes a little time. I mean, I wasn't smiling at first. <laughs> uh, but I think this is one of the things that develops in practice. And then, you know, our hearts really do get a lot lighter about falling down again. Mm. Yeah. So, so. Yeah. being able to being able to have a sense of humor about one's own mind, and all the crazy things it does, is really helpful. One of the stupid things I did is just (laughs) coming to mind. I'll just share it with you (laughs) to show you how stupid (laughs) a mind can be. So this goes back, I don't know, 25 or 30 years. And there was land across the street from IMS that I thought this would be great if we could, you know, buy this land. And over the years we had one very big donor, you know, really given a lot. and so at one point I had this idea that yeah, it would be really great to you know, buy this land. So I asked one of the staff people to go down to the owner uh, and offer a million dollars for the land. And I never asked the donor. <laughs> you know, I just, <laughs> I just <laughs> oh yeah, just offer a million dollars. <laughs> Well, when I thought of this afterwards, <laughs> Joseph, what were you thinking? <laughs> Pretty stupid. <laughs> so that that's just one of ten thousand things. <laughs> I think
6: I have a question. Um,
0: this was I was debating whether it made sense to even ask this, but um, kind of following from that dinner conversation question. I've had this idea for a while that uh, around climate change activism to, you know, I've been thinking maybe what we're lacking is we're not having one-on-one conversations enough with everybody, and maybe I should make a pledge to like, I'm going to talk to every single person I know and have a conversation about climate change. And I don't know, just curious mm-hmm. on how that, how right speech comes into play. Cool.
1: I think would be an interesting experiment. Two, I think there's probably more and less skillful ways of doing it. And so, just off the top of my head, in terms of the question, you might preface the, com- the, the conversation maybe by saying something like, "I mean, this, this is just a." You know, first, first, first draft. Um, you know, I'm really feeling the importance of climate change. I'd love to talk to you about it. You know, are you interested in having the conversation? So it's not like you're dumping your thing, but you're inviting the conversation. So uh, always with things like this, you know, it's finding a way that actually helps to engage people rather than, rather than push them away. Uh, and it's just giving a little thought to, okay, well, what would do that? What would be a skillful way of doing it? Yeah. Try, uh, uh, try it. <laughs> Watch out, everybody. You're gonna, you're gonna be having lots of conversations about climate change. <laughs> I
2: have a question. Um, you've mentioned a couple times, uh, you know, self-judgment and your, you know, self-speech, your own. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your own practice with wise internal speech, and how that's different than our thought process, or just our thinking mind, or yeah, a little bit of the relationship between both of those.
1: I'm not sure what you're seeing as being the difference.
2: Let me see if I can articulate. Um, or maybe you can just answer the first question and then I'll see hmm. if I still have a second part. Okay. Yeah.
1: So I, I can just give you an exercise I did which was super helpful and it ties in a few of the things we've been talking about, especially in terms of having a sense of humor. Uh, one of the most common patterns that people have in their minds uh, is judgment, whether it's judgment about others or self-judgment. You know, our, our mind seem to be a judgment commenting machine. You know, and we just do it a lot. So on one retreat, I was seeing this just proliferate, and particularly in the dining room. You know, I, I was on retreat, and I'd go into the dining room, you know, for meals, and I saw that my mind had a judgment about almost everybody what they were wearing, how fast they were walking, how slow they were walking, how much food they took, it too much, too little it was endless every person I saw there was a little comment so at a certain point I, this is ridiculous <laughs> yeah. so what I started do, doing and I've now taught this on retreats and it has really worked well with yogis, um, I started counting the judgments. So every time, Judgment 1, Judgment 2, Judgment 500, Judgment 9038, at a certain point what happened was that I started smiling. As soon as I could smile at the judging thoughts, they lost all their power. Because what feeds the judgments, are two things. We either believe them, you know, and so we really get into, yeah, I'm right, or we have aversion to them. We don't want them to be there because we think they're bad. In both ways we're strengthening the pattern, which I hadn't seen. So, But once I started counting them, and then at a certain point started smiling at them, I was neither believing them, nor having aversion to them, So then the judgment came and when it was just like a sound coming and going, there was no investment in them at all. And because there was no investment at all, uh, they still kept coming, but gradually came a lot less because I wasn't feeding them. So it's just learning how to relate skillfully to the patterns and to see with the unwholesome patterns in In what way are we strengthening them? And very often with unskillful patterns we don't see that we strengthen them by having aversion to them. You know, we we kind of justify the aversion. Yeah, they are unwholesome. I shouldn't like these. But that energy is actually feeding them. There's another technique. There's a million techniques. This could be used for thought in general, not only judgment. This would be really the next, the next group sitting you have. Just imagine that every thought that arises in your mind is coming from the person next to you.
5: <laughs>
1: you you'll have a very different relationship to the thoughts. <laughs> yeah, and, and be looking askance at the person <laughs> next to you. <laughs> but it, it's just a way of breaking that identification. You know, the thoughts are just arising, but we identify with them, we judge them, we want them to go away, and all of that is just feeding them. Another great... I, I mean, I'd, I have endless... <laughs> I find I find the phenomenon of thought incredibly interesting. Because when we're unaware that we're thinking, they have tremendous power. They are completely dominate our lives. The thoughts go here, go there, do this, do that, you know, get married, get divorced, get <laughs> whatever. It's like we're just we're just being run by our thoughts, and yet when we really see, and are mindful of a thought, and see what a thought is, not not the content, but what it is as a phenomenon, it's barely more than nothing. When we're really looking at the nature of a thought, it is so completely ephemeral. It's like, it's like a mirage, you know, it's, it's showing itself, but there's nothing really there. So isn't this astounding that the same phenomenon, when we're not mindful of it, wields overwhelming power in our lives, and when we are really mindful of it, we see as almost nothing. I just find this incredible, you know, that we're so dominated by nothing and so it's very interesting, for me anyway, especially when a lot of thoughts are coming, just to ask the question at that time, as the thoughts are running, to, to hold the question in the mind, what is a thought, right, not what is the thought saying, but what is it as a phenomenon so we're looking directly at it and we see it's, <laughs> it's just not much there. So this is a tremendously freeing understanding. There's so much, I mean, we could do a 10-day retreat on <laughs> any last question before
2: joy
5: going off of what you just said it seems like when we buy into the thought we make it very solid right and It becomes embodied, and we run with it.
1: Not only that, I mean, just another interesting thing. (laughs) This is is another cause of tremendous fascination for me. Watch sometime how a particular thought can arise, and just, it, it could be a very quick thought, and trigger a huge emotion. You know, we have a thought of somebody, or a thought of something that happened, and so this thought, which in and of itself adds thought, not much there, but if we're not mindful of it, that little piece of nothing can trigger a huge emotional response. So just to watch that is so interesting. So sometimes I'll play, if there's a particular thought that I see is triggering emotions, and then... Sometimes I'll just play and, and purposely have the thought just to watch the emotion come <laughs> and, and seeing just how conditioned it is. And, and the mechanism of how that happens is so odd. You know, what's actually going on here? Yeah. But by, by looking at it, in that way, you begin to see both the conditioned nature of the emotion. You know, it's just it's like you press, a, you press a little button <laughs> thought button pshh. and so it helps us change the relationship become a little less identified with the emotion even as we're feeling it we don't personalize it so much so there's just so much to explore
2: okay. thank you so much Joseph oh was there one more Oh, Michelle yeah Go
6: ahead. At the beginning you were talking about um, someone is yelling at you and they're lying to you and they're and how do you respond with uh, compassionate awareness and loving kindness. And I have a two year old <laughs> and he's often yelling at me and upset, sometimes hitting me and I've found myself having to be in that place of, oh, like he really needs something from me in this moment. Yeah. And he doesn't know any other way to respond other than this. Um, and I'm not by perfect by any means, but I feel like it's strengthening something in me that allows me to not react as quickly. Because I know he's crying or he's upset because he needs love yeah. in this moment.
1: Thank you. That's a beautiful example of how in in one way we know what to do in that situation, but it's remembering that that could apply in many situations. So So that's beautiful, and it's a beautiful practice.
6: Picturing adults as (laughs) two-year-olds flailing around. Exactly. (laughs) Pounding their fists. Yeah.
1: And then, picturing our own minds as two-year-olds.
6: Yeah. <laughs> so, thank you. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you all. Thank
2: you so much, Joseph. Yeah. yeah. We'll take a, about ten-minute stretch break. So, um, we'll keep it quiet in the hall and soft voices outside. So, thank you, everyone.